0: Warmer, sunnier days are finally arriving. As Outside is calling, Factor is here to make sure that however busy you get, your meals are taken care of, giving you all the energy and time to enjoy that weather. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So, no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp and, oh yes, blackened salmon. Don't mind if I do. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine and give yourself time to focus on what makes you happy. What are you waiting for? Head to factormealscom slash danjones50 and use code danjones50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code danjones50 at factormealscom slash danjones50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. A spring dawn breaks over London. For a moment the night's silence is broken only by the crowing of a few cockerels and the lap of the River Thames against its banks. But as the day's first light creeps over the city's ancient walls, there's another sound. The peal of a single church bell. It chimes slow and insistent echoing over the cramped rooftops. But it doesn't ring alone for long. Soon, somewhere else in the city, another church bell starts ringing. Then, another. Then, another. The bells tolling builds as more and more of them join the morning chorus. There are more than a hundred churches inside London's Square Mile, and soon enough, Almost all of their bells are sounding together. It's May the 17th, 1215, a Sunday morning. This is the time for the 25,000 or so people in the city to assemble in divine worship. Maybe to ask the Lord for mercy. It's fair to say that England divided and miserable under the rule of King John, could use a bit of that. Not everyone is at prayer, though. Outside the city, watching the walls from a safe distance, is an imposing man in fine clothes. His name is Robert Fitzwalter, and behind him stands a group of barons and supporters. They call themselves... The Army of God. The Army of God is united by one thing. They're rebels against John's rule. And these rebels have been waiting for the bells of London to start ringing. It's the signal that their time has come. The day before, the rebels were in Bedford, about 60 miles away to the north. Plotting how to take John down. They'd seized a few second rate castles in the Midlands and had John sweating, but they were a long way from having him on the ropes. Then everything changed. Messengers from London found them at Bedford and gave them a simple, exciting instruction Get down to the capital as soon as you can, they said. You'll find friends there. As one chronicler summed it up, The rich citizens were favourable to the barons and the poor were afraid to murmur against them. Hearing that, the army of God rode and marched through the night to get there in time for dawn. When the bells start to peal for Sunday morning service, they rush to the city's walls. At the top of those walls are the usual guards, but they don't sound the alarm. As promised, there on the baron's side. The gates are barred, but some of the baron's men manage to throw up ladders and clamber over the walls. Then they take command of the gates and throw them open for the rest of the army of God to charge through. Once they're in, they slam the gates behind them. Which is just as well. John's illegitimate brother, William Longsword, has been hot on their heels with a force of Flemish mercenaries. He arrives to find that he's too late. The city is shut up and guarded against him. In the space of a few hours, without spilling a drop of blood, the army of God has snatched control of the capital of England. They control the Tower of London, which holds a huge cache of royal weapons and armour. And they can stop the king getting to his treasury at Westminster. It's an incredible coup, and it totally transforms the rebel baron's position. A couple of weeks ago, they'd been outlawed by the king and condemned by John's frenemy-in-chief, Pope Innocent III. They were wondering how they could ever force this slippery Plantagenet king to mend his ways. Now they hold the perfect bargaining chip. John's capital city. They send menacing messages out around England, demanding that all John's other subjects join them while there's still time, or face the consequences later. Then they wait for John to do the only thing he possibly can do. Reach out for peace talks. They think they have their chance to bring this feckless Plantagenet to heel. What they don't know is that they're about to produce what will become one of the most famous documents in all of Western history. I'm Dan Jones, and from Sony Music Entertainment, this is History, a Dynasty to Die For Season 3. Episode 10 Magna Carta. When Henry III chose his royal advisors, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions, and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use Indeed? Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either, and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash dynasty. Indeed.com slash dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's a fair bet that if you pull your headphones out of your ears, stop listening to this podcast for a second, and ask the nearest person to you whether they've heard of Magna Carta, they'll say yes. But it's also a fair bet that if you ask them what Magna Carta actually says, what it meant in its time, and what it means today, they might mutter something about democracy and government, but beyond that they won't have a clue. Which is kind of weird. Magna Carta is so famous that Jay-Z once named an album after it. There's a medieval copy of it on proud display in the US National Archives. On the 800th anniversary of its agreement a few years back, there were huge public commemorations and celebrations on both sides of the Atlantic. During the Covid lockdowns, a rumour went around England that if you printed out a bit of Magna Carta and taped it up in the window of your business – the government couldn't force you to close up shop. Yet if you sit down and read Magna Carta, either in its medieval Latin or a modern English translation, you're likely to find yourself lost quite quickly in its dense technical clauses defining 13th century feudal customs, tax rates and particular legal liberties for particular places. There are a couple of lines in the middle that seem to enshrine basic principles of government under the rule of law, that free men have the right to be tried by their peers and that the king won't sell, deny or delay justice. But there's nothing in there that even tries to spell out the philosophical principles of government. Nothing that has anything to do with what we might call democracy. When you look Magna Carta in the eye, it can be very hard to work out what on earth all the fuss is about. Even the name just means Great Charter. Hardly a great clue. So for a second, let's park what Magna Carta means and think a bit about what it physically is and how it came into being. In May 1215, John's in what we'd technically call a right old pickle. As we've already heard in this podcast, his bid to win back the Plantagenet lands in Normandy that Philip Augustus took from him went spectacularly wrong. He piled money, much of it extorted in outrageous raids on his barons or filched from the church, into a grand military alliance. But his allies were crushed in battle at Bouvines in the summer of 1214. Now his barons have had it up to here with him and they want him to agree to mend his ways and reform his realm. John's policy up to this point has been to duck, dive and dodge committing to any reforms at all. All the while, he's been trying to scrape together an army of mercenaries to face down the rebels. He's taken crusade vows to get the Pope on side. All of that might have succeeded had the barons not seized London. Now they have, though, John really hasn't got much choice but to negotiate with them. The other option is full-blown civil war, which he'd be starting at a big disadvantage, since he doesn't hold his own capital. So John sends word to his barons that he'll meet them in a formal parley. The place they agree on is a large expanse of meadowland in the Thames Valley, not far from Windsor Castle. It's known as Runnymede, and it's somewhat of a tradition for people to meet there to sort out their differences. Since it's a meadow, wetland, it's no good for fighting on horseback. There are also not many bridges over the Thames around here, so it's hard to mount a surprise attack. John tells his barons to meet him there in June and heads to Windsor Castle to prepare his case. The barons set up camp in the nearby town of Staines. In the second week of June 1215, they meet in the middle, at Runnymede. Runnymede today is a really nice spot. I live just down the road and now and again I like to walk my dog there. There's lots of green open space, the river runs gently past and, other than the planes that take off every 90 seconds or so from nearby Heathrow Airport, it's pretty tranquil. In June 1215 though, it's anything but tranquil. If we want to picture what the great meeting at Runnymede looked like, I think it's best to imagine a cross between a G8 summit of world leaders and, well, the Glastonbury festival. The meadow is a sea of brightly coloured tents and pavilions, set up as breakout rooms for subcommittees to toss back and forth the various political hot potatoes that are bothering the army of God. In some of them, royal officials and the baron's representatives are thrashing out what is a fair rate of inheritance tax when a noble inherits his father's estates. In another, the rights of widows to hang on to their own property are under discussion. In the next, London's bigwigs are demanding that they receive all sorts of guarantees that the king won't mess with their political freedoms. In a fourth, merchants are complaining about their own pet peeve, fish traps being placed in rivers, which makes it hard for their boats to get from port to port. All this goes on for days. Overseeing the negotiations are churchmen led by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton. Templars and abbots mill around, reminding everyone to play nice. There are endless breakout groups where pockets of political movers and shakers talk urgently with each other, trying to come up with some solution to the latest deadlock in discussions. Periodically, a royal barge floats downriver from Windsor, a few miles away, and John casts his eye over proceedings. He's trying to keep his cool, rather than going full-blown Henry II and screaming threats. He's being kept updated on the progress of negotiations by his lawyers and officials. And as the days go by, they, and he, are starting to agree the exact wording of the concessions he's going to make to his barons. On Wednesday, June the 10th, John gets off his barge and holds discussions in person with his advisers and opponents, all day. By this point there's an agreement that's basically ready to go. No doubt the rebels have been worried that John won't cooperate or play nice. They're pleasantly surprised. John lets it be known that on Monday June 15th he's going to come to the conference site in person and make it all official and so he does. But the way he makes it official is nothing like the images you usually see. There's no big desk set up with a giant quill and a sheet of parchment waiting for the royal autograph. No documents in this age are signed. That only comes in much later in the Middle Ages. Nor is there a big jug of sealing wax and a rubber stamp waiting. Sealing is a process of certifying that a document is not a fake. The act of sealing doesn't mean a thing. No, the way the Runnymede Agreement is made official is this. John holds a formal audience with his rebellious barons, and a list of the reforms that have been agreed upon is read out. John and the barons' representatives all swear a solemn oath to uphold the terms of the agreement. Once that's done, or more likely while it's being done, a small battalion of clerks and scribes are hard at work making copies of the text of the agreement. These are going to be distributed around the country via the royal sheriffs and the church. There are so many copies made that the royal chancery, that's the office which draws up official documents, actually runs out of clerks. They have to draft in monks, who are more used to copying out biblical texts and prayer books. Then, on the Friday of that week, June the 19th, John holds a big feast at which he invites his barons one by one to renew what's known as their homage to him. That's the faithful, feudal promise that they'll be loyal and obedient to him and not go around trying to nick his castles, murder his kids or generally give him grief. Once they've knelt before John and renewed their vows, they are formally taken back into John's good books with a kiss of peace. They are his faithful men once more. And that's important because Magna Carta, as the agreements they've drawn up will one day be called, is specifically and exclusively granted to his free and faithful men. Only four original copies of the Runnymede Agreement of June 1215, or Magna Carta, survive to this day. Two are kept in the British Library, one in Lincoln Castle and the other in Salisbury Cathedral. From their tiny, heavily abbreviated Latin script, we can still read today the exact form of the agreement that John made with his barons. I still find it amazing to read the words that were actually scratched out on parchment in Prato quod vocatur ronimede into Wendelsorum et Stanis, or if you want a loose translation, in the field where I walk my poodle. But in 1215 there's one big problem with Magna Carta. John grants it alright, but he has no intention of keeping to its terms. And hiding in plain sight in Magna Carta is a clause that will turn John's bad faith into the basis for all-out war. The world's full of people celebrating their successes, but if the Plantagenets have taught us anything, it's that failing is much more interesting. So that's why I'm certain you're going to love the podcast How to Fail. The very brilliant Elizabeth Day invites guests on to talk about three of their biggest failures and what they've taught them about life. It's a great way to hear a new side to people you may think you know. Guests include Bernie Sanders, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Stanley Tucci. Give it a try. Find how to fail wherever you get your podcasts. As the clerk's quills scratched across the parchment at Runnymede, making copies of Magna Carta they probably did not consider that people would still be quoting the words they were writing more than 800 years later. For the most part, they were right. For example, after Magna Carta guaranteed that John wouldn't interfere in the affairs of the Church, it promised this. If any earl, baron, or other person that holds lands directly of the crown for military service shall die, and at his death his heir shall be of full age and owe a relief, the heir shall have his inheritance on payment of the ancient scale of relief. That is to say, the heir or heirs of an earl shall pay £100 for the entire earl's barony, the heir or heirs of a knight 100 shillings at most for the entire knight's fee, and any man that owes less shall pay less in accordance with the ancient usage of fees. It doesn't exactly trip off the tongue, right? Nor do most of the other 63 clauses. There are, of course, a couple of exceptions. Most famously, the clauses we usually number 39 and 40. No free man shall be seized, imprisoned, dispossessed, outlawed, exiled or ruined in any way, nor in any way proceeded against except by the lawful judgment of his peers and the law of the land. That kind of means John won't confiscate all your land with no warning and throw you in jail to starve to death just because he feels like it. Then there's this. To no one will we sell. To no one will we deny or delay right or justice. Now these definitely have more of a universal ring about them. But if we dig into them a bit, they're not so universal after all. Only people who are both men and free get to enjoy the freedoms Magna Carta promises. It's only with a lot of retrospect, mostly 400 years after John's reign, during the English Civil War in the 17th century, that anyone starts claiming that Magna Carta is the foundation stone of liberty. If we want to understand why we revere Magna Carta today, it's really a conversation about the history of the Enlightenment not the Plantagenet period. In 1215 itself, there's one clause in particular that's at the heart of everything that follows. It's almost never quoted because it's very long and technical, but the idea it contains is absolutely critical to getting our heads around the basic problem with John. It also gets to the heart of one of the thorniest questions about government in Britain, which still, in a way, troubles us today. The clause is one of the very last ones. It's usually numbered clause 61. It's sometimes nicknamed the Security Clause. I won't quote it all, because if you wanted to go to sleep listening to a podcast, you could just download some white noise. But the essence of it is this. John promises that if he or any of his royal officials break the terms of Magna Carta and John refuses to put it right, then a specially elected council of 25 barons will be legally allowed to assail us in every way possible by seizing our castles, lands, possessions or anything else saving only our own person and those of the Queen and our children. I think it's fair to say that this Charter is not mucking around. Because what is it actually saying? This is supposed to be a peace negotiation to stop the army of God going to war with John. Yet, if any point of Magna Carta is broken, then Clause 61 kicks in and starts a civil war. You can see what the barons were thinking, of course, They didn't trust John any further than they could throw him. They had to try and come up with some way of making sure that he didn't just ignore the charter they'd wrung out of him. But you can also see what John's thinking. This charter contains such a deep flaw that it isn't really worth the parchment it's written on. It's not long before that becomes blindingly obvious. Because what happens is this. For about a month after Magna Carta is granted and sent out around the country, John grudgingly sticks to its terms. He starts formally returning castles that have been confiscated from the rebels. But it doesn't take long for John to get fed up with playing Mr Obedient. His health is suffering, he's laid up in bed with gout, and he's in a very bad mood. So in July, he starts being outright petulant. He starts ranting that he thinks the barons should now issue their own charter, promising to obey him and all his heirs. Needless to say, this doesn't go down well. So John, almost unable to help himself, does the utterly predictable. Remember that now he has taken his crusader vows, he has Pope Innocent III on speed dial. He gets letters off post-haste to Rome, telling Innocent what has happened. The letters get to Innocent in mid-August. The Pope's replies arrive in England in early September. And what they say is explosive. The enemy of the human race, that's Satan, not John, in case you're wondering, by his cunning wiles has stirred up the barons of England and caused them to rebel. Innocent says that in Magna Carta, John has been forced to accept an agreement which is not only shameful and demeaning, but also illegal and unjust. Then he drops the bomb. We utterly reject and condemn this settlement, and under threat of excommunication, we order that the king should not dare to observe it, and that the barons and their associates should not require it to be observed. We declare it null and void of all validity forever. John is absolutely delighted by this. His barons, needless to say, are appalled. They thought they could bring John to heel. They were wrong. So some of them decide that this means simply making war on John isn't sufficient. He's never going to change. He's never going to be anything but John. Enough is enough. It's time to get rid of him altogether and hand over the English crown to someone else. Which is convenient, because that someone else just happens to be waiting for the bat signal to go up. Across the channel, Philip Augustus, King of France, has been monitoring events in England with some glee. He's been biding his time, waiting for the perfect moment to act or rather, the perfect moment for someone else to act. Philip is 50, a bit long in the tooth to go invading England himself. But he has a son, 28-year-old Louis, known as Louis the Lion. Louis is raring to go. England is just the sort of challenge he needs. In September 1215, the English barons write to the French court and invite Louis the Lion to come and replace John as King of England. Louis doesn't need asking twice. But that's for next time on This Is History. Before you go, a reminder that we have some fantastic subscriber-only content just waiting for you on This Is History Plus. This time, producer Rosie and I will be digging into the various intriguing clauses of Magna Carta and looking at why it still holds so much fascination for us today. Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial and start listening today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do give us a rating or a review. It's a great way to support us and help new people find the podcast.